Hello, you're watching Global Investor on Business Day TV. I'm Stephen Gunyan. Nick Kunzer from Bridge Stockbrokers joining me this evening to guide us through all the latest news on global markets. Later in the show, we'll be joined by Chris Potchiter to discuss Old Mutual's food and agri portfolio. All that coming your way shortly. First, though, a quick look at what's been making the headlines. Well, T-Mobile and Sprint have finally agreed on a merger. The $26 billion agreement ends four years of on and off talks between the U.S.'s third and fourth largest wireless carriers. The new firm will retain the T-Mobile name and be run by its current CEO, John Leger. Amazon's raised the price of its Prime membership for U.S. subscribers by $20. The move is expected to add a windfall to the company's subscription revenue, which was up 60% in the first quarter at just over $3 billion. And world stocks appear to be set for a positive month for the first time since January. That has a slew of positive earnings from U.S. technology firms and M&A deals helped soothe the memories of February's tremors. Here's more on that. It was a holiday in Japan, China and India, but Europe got off to a strong start, partly thanks to Asian events. Easing tensions in the Korean peninsula, combined with some shining U.S. first quarter earnings. The MSCI All-Country Index of Global Equities was set for its first monthly rise since January. We're afraid of three things, war, interest rates and tariffs. And now it's 2-1 for the markets. Firstly, North Korea's ruler wants peace. Secondly, the fear of interest rates has dissipated as yields are falling. Only concern over tariffs persists. And there is hope that the EU and the US can come to an agreement. The EU was given a temporary reprieve from President Trump's steel and aluminium tariffs. It's hoping for a permanent one when the deadline expires on May the 1st. USA PLC is still keeping stocks up. More than half of Wall Street's S&P 500 companies have reported earnings, and almost four out of five of them have beaten consensus estimates. It's on the back of the return to growth of the economy, uh, and also, of course, primarily, uh, the uh, stabilization and, and tightening of the US employment market. Uh, so I think this is very largely one that's on USA PLC. But 2017's dream run for equities, caused by easy monetary policies and synchronised world growth, is not expected to be repeated in 2018. Many expect the Fed to raise rates three more times, and US protectionism is still a concern. Although a visit to China this week by US officials could be good news for the trade dispute. Nick Kunzer from Bridge Stockbrokers joining me in studio. Um, so Nick, a very rough April, quite mm. a volatile April, but uh, it looks like a positive close uh, today again. Uh, is it going to be a case of sell in May and go away? She asked Stephen Greeny, um, I, I, I think so. It, you know, it, as you pointed out, it, it's, it's been quite a volatile uh, last couple of weeks. Um, but, you know, US earnings season is, is in full flow. They've been quite good. Um, they were price for absolute perfection um, and we seem to be to hitting those those good results and uh, it appears that the earnings come out the, the the stock runs a little bit and then softens a bit so maybe it is a case of, of going away <laughs> but I mean we, we are in for an extended period of volatility it looks like and last year there was complaints that we didn't have enough volatility in the market mm. this year we have seen and we saw with the the yield on 10-year treasuries going above three percent last week, the, the sort of knee-jerk reaction you had in the, the equity market, is that likely to continue? I, th I think it is. I, th I think the, the certainly the theme for the moment is all about the yield curve. You know, where is it flattening? Is it is it 
is it steepening? What is it doing? Uh, currently, this yield curve is actually flattening, which, which signifies normally it, it, it change in trends. So I think uh, I think markets and, and, and market watchers are a little bit nervous that maybe that maybe the, the, the you know this this good run that we've had is possibly coming to an end. Mm. Well, we've, we've had some economic data out of the United States, and that's ahead of the U.S. Fed meeting. Uh, I think it's tomorrow and yeah. Wednesday. The Fed meets. We had first quarter GDP better than expected at 2.3%, though slowing down from the fourth quarter of last year. CPI 2% last month. Um, what's the Fed going to make of all this? Well, I think the Fed are looking at this and going, well, inflation is possibly is possibly coming back. You know, the the the, the Federal Reserve has been very adamant that they they need inflation to kick in, and this is the reason why that that the the ten-year yield has been so low for so long, apart from the last couple of weeks. Is there's been no inflation, but right now what we're seeing is inflation kicking up, and also you've got the, don't forget you've got uh, oil prices kicking up as well. Mm-hmm. You know, oil back at over seventy dollars a barrel—that is inflationary. And uh, and I think that the, the if I was the Fed, I'd be quite welcome that there's a bit of inflation kicking in. No expectation of a rate hike this week, though, but potentially at the next meeting. No, I- exactly right. There's going the, the the market the market watchers are saying no rate hike, but possibly next time and and possibly you know. I think the, the markets are, are possibly a little complacent. They're talking about three rate hikes, it's possibly four. So, as I said, with, with inflation looking like it's kicking in, it's, it, it, it might be more likely. Mm-hmm. And then, what did you make of the ECB's meeting last week? So, they are, are also chasing inflation. Mm-hmm. It's not quite at the same point as the US yet, mm-hmm. though. And, and Drachi extremely dovish, as he always has been. I mean, co- uh, constantly. We're not raising rates. We're not raising rates. We're not raising rates. You know, at some point, the 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 market is is looking for them to 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 at least signal that maybe the ECB is going to exit this stimulus package. But but for now, very very dovish, and and, and it continues to be it could to be that way. Okay, let's take a look at some of the results that we've had out. Um, and as you said, more than half of the the S and P has reported mm-hmm. back. Four out of five beating consensus so far. Uh, and we had all of the, the big tech companies out already. So Amazon, Twitter, Facebook. Uh, and Facebook, a positive surprise, but could be worse things to come following the Cambridge mm. Analytica fallout. Mm. Mm. Yeah, so I mean, Facebook's been in, in, in certainly in the headlines for the wrong reasons, but uh, it's still, it's still it continues to be a, I mean, it's a money printing machine. I mean, the amount of money they make at advertising up 17% there was year on year. It, it continues to be um, a, a really good investment theme, but um, there are concerns over how they're going to they're certainly control what's happening with, with, um, with, with the spotlight on them at the moment. Would you be wary of Facebook in the meantime? I'd, I'd be cautious, Stephen. I think I think uh, at the moment, you know, it's 172 rand. You know, uh, sorry, 172 dollars was it was back at 158, 160 uh, a couple of days ago. But uh, it's bounced back a little bit. But I'd, I'd continue to be a little bit cautious on the stock. Okay, Amazon. They've lifted the veil on their Prime membership uh, subscribers. 100 million of them, mm. and it's now just announced that it's going to stick its prices up for Prime members in the United States by by 20 percent, mm. so to 119 dollars from 99 dollars. And that, I mean that's a great annuity stream for Amazon, and, and and quite extraordinary because I mean Amazon's been very very. They don't like telling you what they're doing. And if you if you lift up under the hood, 
they don't say much. Um, but in this particular case, uh, it was actually leaked on, on, on a memo that we went out to, uh, to internal staff that they've got over 100 million uh, Amazon Prime members. It, it continues to, to just be an extraordinary business and uh, an annuity income business that, that really keeps on going. Mm. Uh, too expensive to invest in? I mean, th people are arguing that Amazon was too expensive, it was $700. I mean, it's, it's now close to 1600 So I think the naysayers continue to, to keep doing that. Okay. Um, we've also had some earnings coming out of Europe um, and lots of the big banks reporting banks. We had Barclays, Royal Bank of Scotland over the last week, Deutsche Bank as well. Mm. And Deutsche Bank, 79% drop in first quarter profit, cutting back on its investment banking. It looks like Barclays is benefiting from that. Um, Deutsche Bank, is it facing a breakup? How's it going to turn itself around? I think, I think Deutsche Bank is, is, a, is a quite a difficult thing to quantify. Um, as, as a stock, it, 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 at one stage, was one of the largest banks in the world, and, and now they, I think that there's a question mark over what, what do they want to be. Um, I think they will continue to certainly to uh, exit what they're doing in Europe, um, and that's not good. I mean, they continue to downsize themselves. They, they're getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Um, and and I, s I just get the impression that, that, that Deutsche Bank is, is, is not going to be the player that they used to be. Okay. Um, and a couple of M&A um, deals going down. Um, Sprint and T-Mobile, $26 mm -hmm. billion dollar merger. Um, so that's the third and fourth largest wire wireless carriers in the United States. But it's been four years coming. Yeah. Why, why now? <laughs> yeah, long, long overdue. Long overdue. So uh, I just, I just think the environment is with cheap rates where they are. Uh, before we're heading into a high interest rate environment, it, it, it makes sense to certainly bed this down now. And, and they've been talking about it for ages. So, so it's long overdue. Finally, they got the Sprint Mobile deal happening. Uh, I presume, um, since they have been talking about it for four years, that they have addressed any regulate, regulatory concerns that, that they might have um, anticipated. So, I mean, do you see any hurdles here? No, I don't. I, I, I think the, the market wants it to happen. Uh, I think regulators are quite keen to, to certainly bed this down, and I, I don't see anything else, I think. Okay, and then Sainsbury buying Asda from Walmart, and that's a 10 billion dollar deal um, and it'll actually then overtake Tesco mm -hmm. as the biggest supermarket group in the United Kingdom and um, but you're looking at two retailers at opposite ends of the spectrum because Sainsbury very much upper middle markets and Asda very mm -hmm. much um, mm -hmm. lower end of the markets. Yeah but I think you know and I think it's actually quite a nice fit you know the Sainsbury's is trying to differentiate uh, itself and you know the market doesn't quite know what it wants to do the market's looking for a deal there's been rumors of us for a while, but I actually personally think it's quite a good fit. So let's see if they merge it. Let's see what happens. Look, early days yet, but I think overall, I think it's quite a good fit. A any thoughts on Walmart exiting the UK, though? No, I just, I just think Walmart, it just, you know, they got their fingers burned. They tried a few different uh, uh, things in the, in the UK uh, with Brexit, with what's happening in, in the Eurozone. I don't think they're going to feel it. Um, and how, how about, um, I mean, I, sp I suppose they're also facing competition for some of those German retailers like Aldi and Lidl, mm. and of course online retailers, so probably pays to have economies of scale and be lean and mean. 
linear mean exactly and and as i said you know once again the 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 brexit is possibly at the latest indications is, is not looking like it's going to be a very smooth ending and i think if i was if i was a, a u.s retailer i'd certainly be staying away okay uh, let's leave it there for a moment we're going to a short break when we come back we're going to take a look at old mutuals food and agri portfolio that's with chris potgieter don't go anywhere Welcome back. You're watching Global Investors. Still with me in studio, Nick Kunze from Bridge Stockbrokers, joining us on the line to discuss their food and agri portfolio. Chris Potgieter, the CEO of Old Mutual Wealth Trust Company. And um, Chris, thanks very much for chatting to us. So tell us in a nutshell, what are you getting if you invest in the global food and agri portfolio? Stephen, if you invest in this portfolio, firstly, you must invest in the long-term team, long-term team of uh, global food security. Uh, it's ultimately not a portfolio, uh, you know, for short-term uh, investing. It is a portfolio which does have cyclical elements to it, but also some stable elements. And in order to uh, stomach the cyclicality, you have to be an investor for the long term and believe in the theme of global food security. So, you know, if you look at uh, a number of investment themes, um, that we've identified for long-term investors. Food security stands uh, apart from many others as being a solid foundation for uh, investing, uh, as I said, for the long term. And I suppose, I mean, you're talking about long term, so seven years plus, um, and uh, the, the situation, I suppose, globally is only going to get worse with limited and shrinking resources on, on one hand uh, and growing demand for food on the other hand. Absolutely. So seven years plus, definitely, we would actually recommend longer than that, 10 years or, or longer. Um, when we look at both the demand and the supply side of food security in the world, demand uh, is set to increase. There is no doubt about it. You know, we've got short memories, but in 1960, world population was 3 billion people. We're now 7 billion people. We are facing... Um, you know, growth in populations in developing countries that uh, equal the U.S. population every four or five years. That's the growth in developing countries. You also have GDP per capita increasing. And if GDP per capita increases, you can expect, as it's already been seen, that uh, caloric intake per person is going to increase. And that will put, you know, uh, more demand on the production of protein. And protein by its nature, is, is pretty intensive. You know, it takes five kilograms of crop to produce one kilogram of meat, for example. And the ratio tells you that uh, demand, you know, for crop demand certainly will increase quite significantly. By our estimates, crop demand by 2050 will probably be 100% higher than where it is today. That's the demand side. And then when you look at the supply constraints, globally, you know, 20% of arable land is already degraded. You're not adding more land of the same quality than what is being lost, for example, through climate change or urbanization. Uh, the North American diet at the moment requires about two acres per person. Um, if the current trends of land degradation and loss of land continues, then in 40 years' time, you'll have less than 20% of that available per person. 
Also, you know, fresh water is the other factor. 70% of fresh water, 60 to 70% of fresh water globally is consumed by agriculture in the production of food. So I think if you combine those demand, uh, rising demand trends coupled to the supply constraints, you will see that over the long term, if you, if you have a view of 10 years or longer, the, uh, the global agri and food value chain presents significant investment opportunities. Okay, before we get into the makeup of the fund, let me ask Nick, um, is this something that whets your appetite, Nick? No, absolutely. I actually, uh, it's it's a little bit of a, a, a pet project of mine. I, I love this whole uh, uh, th- theme with with where we're going with this, and, and I think it's brilliant. Um, I mean, just just a just a thought. I mean, w- with with current rumblings, with uh, what's happening in in our local market, with uh, with politics, etc. With talking about sort of land invasion. I mean, is this a concern uh, going on? Do you think? Mm. Uh, your thoughts on that, Chris? Um, in, in South Africa, in, in particular, where you do have threats of land security. Well, look, this, this portfolio is global in its nature, so there's no particular geography that will present, uh, you know, significant risks to the portfolio. I also think, you know, uh, not wanting to comment on, on any of the local developments in, in too much detail, but uh, you know, there's a way to work through these things. Uh, you know, the trade wars is another example of something that could be of, of significant concern. That will also impact the food and agricultural value chain. But again, there will be those that benefit and there will be others that uh, benefit less with these developments. But ultimately, uh, you know, ultimately demand has to be met and supply will find, uh, you know, new markets. Okay. T- tell us about the sort of companies that the fund invests in, because you go right across the value chain, so from the seed producers and I suppose um, fertilizer companies, all the way through to food producers and all down to, to retailers and wholesalers and even Starbucks. Yes, so as I said, you know, the, the early part of the value chain tends to be very cyclical. If you look at the commodity producers themselves and then those directly impacted, uh, you know, the seed, uh, the, you know, the supplies of seed, pesticides, so forth, farming equipment like deer and company. So those do tend to be quite cyclical. And that's why we've constructed the portfolio with some elements towards the other parts of the value chain. So when you start looking at your logistics, your packaging and your retailing, you will get more stability, more stable performance, uh, you know, of companies and uh, and more stable performance of the portfolio in total. Company like Starbucks, for example, is very interesting because they have integrated uh, upwards in the supply chain uh, that feeds them, you know, and they've done it in a very ethical way to ensure that coffee is harvested in a sustainable way, that communities uh, of, of small farmers are not exploited unduly, and um, unduly treated uh, in terms of uh, price taking. And... Uh, you know, that's why the company has, has found its way into the portfolio. Coffee is a very important beverage uh, globally. Uh, you take a country, for example, like Japan, who, uh, you know, in the 60s was still uh, predominantly tea-consuming nation, and today uh, consumes more coffee than tea. And you've got a population in China which is significantly larger than Japan, uh, with a similar dynamic starting to happen, where coffee is only now being adopted as an alternative beverage to tea. So, so uh, coffee makes sense as part of this uh, portfolio. 
Starbucks makes specific sense because of its uh, significant presence in, uh, in both the production of coffee and the retailing of the coffee beverage. Mm. Uh, now, now, I noticed that you, you, you've used a sort of satellite approach with the fund. Um, you have a couple of ETFs, which are the anchors. So the two biggest holdings are ETFs. You've got one which is called Moo and one which is called Veggie, um, interestingly enough. Um, wh why two ETFs? Because I see there is a bit of overlap between the two different ETFs that, that are the biggest holdings. Yes, those ETFs do have some overlap. And uh, they are two ETFs because effectively they do offer some differences in terms of which part of or how they classify companies for inclusion. I think the job an ETF does in a portfolio like this is it does give you exposure to certain geographies and sectors with significant diversification, which is impossible to attain on a direct holding basis. It also does um, uh, produce for you some stability in the portfolio because of that uh, very diversification that it offers. And uh, we've uh, decided to include two because, as I say, uh, apart from the overlap, there are some differences which are meaningful in the way in which these ETFs are constructed and managed by the ETF providers. Uh, your thoughts on using, using a core of ETFs in a fund like this, Nick? Yeah, I, I, I can see the merits behind it. Um, my, personal, my personal view is that, uh, you know, certainly the structured space that, that, that Chris is getting into is it, it's not it's not your your typical uh, portfolio, and, and I quite like it. I I, I think it's uh, heading into we talk about food inflation. I mean, everyone's talking about inflation. Where's inflation coming? Well, you know what? And food inflation is coming around the corner. So a portfolio like this, I think, is is, is very nicely structured. Mm. And Chris, it's, it's a fairly new fund, so there isn't a track record. Your, your benchmark is the MSCI um, Select Agri Producers Index. Have you measured how your performance would have um, re related to that uh, benchmark over the, the past? Yeah, we've done some backtesting, um, Stephen, but we, uh, we don't like to market uh, any portfolio based on, on backtesting. So we would expect to outperform the index. Um, the two ETFs will more closely track the index, obviously, but the talks that we uh, apply into the portfolio, the direct holdings, is intended to uh, give us better opportunities relative to what one would find in the index over shorter periods of time. So even though I said that you want to invest for the longer term, our job here is to outperform that index after fees significantly over a, over a, rolling, over a rolling basis. And, um, and uh, the tilts away from the ETFs and from the index are the direct holdings that you currently observe in the portfolio. So, uh, if I was to say past performance, obviously it's easy to reconstruct past performance, but we would certainly expect it to be in excess of the index by a significant margin, at least fees, but in uh, fees plus some. So what sort of returns could investors be looking at for a fund like this? Yeah, look, I mean, again, you know, one must be very careful in predicting returns, but, you know, long-term equity returns, uh, you know, global equity returns in nominal terms, one could expect probably, uh, given current PEs in the order of 10, 10, 10% per annum nominally, um, the agri sector in particular, agri and food sector in particular, presents an interesting valuation entry point at the moment because 
it has obviously not been as sub- subject to as much uh, valuation or price earnings expansion as some of the other more favoured sectors, uh, the obvious one being information technology. Um, back in 2006-07, when there was a global food shortage, uh, I think, again, we tend to forget about this, but it was only 10 years ago when we faced a global food sh- shortage, and that was uh, compounded by the production of ethanol from uh, corn and, and, and sugar um, because of energy prices, oil prices being so high. At that stage, uh, you know, fees accelerated quite significantly and the sector, in fact, for a period of time, outperformed most other sectors. But I would say that it's probably reasonable to expect in the order of 10% nominal over the longer term. Of course, this is, of course, for uh, investors with deep pockets, isn't it? Because it's a minimum investment of $75,000, Chris. Yes, so um, $75,000 for a uh, global portfolio um, that is diversified to the extent that this one is, that is not only constructed out of ETFs but have direct holdings, uh, in our view is, uh, is a very low number. It may be a high number for the, for the average investor um, and maybe then for you know, those that do not have you know, $75,000 to invest in such a portfolio, it, it may be sensible to construct a derivative of this portfolio comprising of uh, the two ETFs and perhaps, uh, you know, uh, one, one or two other ETFs, uh, which, uh, which we may be able to suggest. Chris, we have to leave it there. Thanks very much for sharing it with us this evening. Pleasure. Thank you. Uh, and thanks again to you, Nick, as well. Um, I think I'm one of the average investors, so I don't think I'll be buying it just yet, but uh, maybe in the future. 25,000. Yeah. <laughs> we'll leave it at that. Yeah, that's the show for this week. Thanks again to Nick Kunzer from Bridge Stockbrokers, Chris Potheter, the CEO of Old Mutual Wealth Trust Company, for their insights. Thanks to you for watching. Same time next week. Goodbye.